Welcome to episode one of Chasing the Dragon. Welcome to episode one of Chasing the Dragon, a podcast about my first foray into Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first edition. My name is Jason Wood. You may know me as the Mad Cleric, a past writer for themadadventurers.com and infrequently for my own site, madcleric.com. Now before I introduce my guest tonight, let me give some background for this podcast and the project that it accompanies. Five years ago, I played my first tabletop RPG, 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons, and boy did I play it. I DM'd once a week for about three years uh, with other games as a player tossed in here and there. Needless to say, after three years of that, I got a little worn out on the system and I moved on to other RPGs and other games. But as 5th edition D&D uh, started building up its following, I found myself wanting to go back to the Swords and Shields, but I was left with a nagging question. Why play 5th edition when I could play 1st edition? Why play new modules and new scenarios when I haven't even played the oldest, most revered, and most nostalgic? So I envisioned a project, which I've called Chasing the Dragon. It's all about going back in time and recapturing the experience of the first D&D players. And here's what I'm doing. I'm learning the rules from the ground up, and then I intend to either DM or play through every module written by Gary Gygax. It may take a very long time, but that's... The goal. So tonight, I've invited two experts to give us their input on first edition AD&D, and I hope it will not only be interesting for each of our listeners or viewers, but that it will also inspire you to go back and pick up those dusty old AD&D rule books. My first guest tonight is a member of the Mad Adventurer Society, Joshua Brown. You may recognize his voice from the podcast uh, Tales from the Hydean Way or Pottlebat Yelp. And our second guest, Jeff Romo, is a member of the board of Inroads Ministries. You may recognize him from the podcast Game Store Profits or Inroads Plays. Guys, thanks for uh, joining me for this inaugural podcast. Really appreciate y'all being here tonight. Happy to be here. Um, hats off to you. I am ready with the sanity blanket just in case we need to toss it on you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's get right into it then. So my first question I'm going to toss to both of you guys, and you've already touched on it, and it's this. Have I absolutely lost my mind? Is uh, learning AD&D and then trying to go through all Gygax's modules just absolutely crazy? What are your thoughts? Yes, yeah, pretty yes, much. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when I first got the email or, and, or the, the notice on Twitter, and then I got the email, because on Twitter I thought, oh, He's just kidding. I must have mistaken him. I must have said, I'm taking the modules. Now I'm going to play them in 5e. Perfect. That sounds so awesome. Even uh, Brent Brown and I are working on putting together uh, a conversion for Dragon Mountain. And we're thinking, oh, yeah, that's exactly what he's going to do. But then I read the email. I was like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, I, there's a lot of nostalgia for the way we used to play. And... Um, so, so on the one hand, I admire your, your concept. Um, but I think, and, and I think we'll get into this a lot more tonight. Um, there's a lot of reasons why there were later editions of D&D and why there are other games. Um, there's, there's certainly a lot to recommend first edition, but there are a lot of challenges. So, um, it depends. How good are you with a slide rule? Uh, I, I guess I haven't gotten that part of the Dungeon Masters Guide just yet. That's, that's really the best way to get the full nostalgia back before there were, you know, 
everyone had electronic <laughs> calculators. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach back and I'm gonna I'm gonna actually call my old group and I'm gonna say, guys, break out your TI-85. Uh, <laughs> and I think some of y'all will know what I'm talking about. Yep. <laughs> Well, from from here on out, just let the record be stated. Anytime we say AD&D, we're talking about first edition. So if we're going to talk about other editions, we'll, we'll clarify. But that's our baseline. We're, we're, we're in a way glorifying that, perhaps overly so tonight. Uh, but but that'll be kind of our, our, our working rule. So, so let's dig into this then. So Josh, uh, tell us about your first experience with uh, AD&D. When did you first play? What do you remember from that first experience? What did you take away from it? So that's actually a super interesting question. I've been sort of cudgeling my my memories um, because I I think it was on a visit to my cousin who at the time lived just outside Cincinnati and my little brother and I had invented our own role playing game version of a of a old board game called Wizard's Quest. And when he heard what we were doing, he said, oh, here, let me run you through something. And I have no, I think it was something he just made up on his own. And at the end, and he had all these really interesting books. This would be back mid-80s-ish. He, he said, oh, I'm not going to give you any of those books, but here's the easy version of the game. And he gave me the red box. And so then I played that for several years. And then in middle school, started back in on AD&D. Uh, after playing the the red box for a while, so it's been a long, long time. So when you played it with your cousin, uh, was it better than the RPG you, you and your brother had made up? And 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 what 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 what, what did you get out of it? Uh, the characters die, <laughs> 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 and that my cousin perhaps a sadistic had a sadistic glee in killing our, our characters. Now, did he actually start you off with Tomb of Horrors, or was this just a regular... Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't Tomb of Horrors. It was, I think, something he made up for that weekend. Um, Nice. But, uh, yeah, so... So that was that was interesting. So then I... When I started routinely playing, it was was in middle school, and we were playing... um, You know, a lot of times it wasn't even in modules initially. It was... And you'll hear a lot of people who have this experience open the monster manual <laughs> to a random page, and that's your session for the night. There you go. <laughs> now, how about you? How about you, Jeff? When did you first play it, and what was that experience like? Well, um, so I, my my role playing game experience started with uh, with Shadowrun, actually. You know, I started there, but then because of the level of complexity, one of the players at the table said, you know, I, I, have you guys wanted to play some some fantasy games? And you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, sure, that's fine. And then he was like, well, let, let me bring a couple of films over. And so, you know, that's the time when we were, I was watching, you know, I was watching the D&D cartoons. That was about the extent that I had of, of experience with Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I really want to have some short, white-haired guy telling me what to do and stuff like that. It just sounds silly. But, uh, yeah, so he brought it over. Um, the fact that I was playing Shadowrun before that helped out a lot with balancing complexity mm-hmm. because of how complex first edition Shadowrun was to the complexity of D&D 1E. It was just like, yeah, that's that's no problem. Uh, about the time we started it, 2E came out, so it was my first year in high school, so it was about 88, 89 I think, and we just, you know, we're just 
freshmen. We don't have money and stuff. And my mom wasn't about to buy me, you know, a new game after I'd spent all this, um, begged and begged and begged to spend all this money on the, all the Shadowrun books. And so, um, yeah. So we ended up playing, uh, playing 1E there. Uh, we started off with Tomb of Horrors. My friend was wow. a, a sadist. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the, uh, I lost a character about five paces in the front door. <laughs> I just, oh my gosh, my saving foes were not good. And I, at the time, had made a, a thief, just a straight thief. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be nice and sneaky. I'm going to get around all the traps. Everybody's going to want me to be at the lead and be able to handle all this stuff. And no, 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 no. I failed miserably. And then, boom, dead. So when I brought it back, when I brought my character back, or I brought a new character into the place, I did a multi-class. I did a fighter thief. Okay. So that I could get a little bit more of, a little bit more armor, to be honest. That's what I was shooting for was armor, so that wasn't wasn't so crunchy. So did D&D replace Shadowrun in your uh, gaming life at that point, or were you playing both kind of for, concurrently? Uh, I, I kind of kicked it back and forth a little bit. Um, just because at the time I was, I was watching, um, I was watching my VH cop, VHS copy of Blade Runner over and over and over again. So Shadowrun was never too far away from my mind. And the thing was, is that I started really falling in love with, with the fantasy aspect of D&D. I was just like, oh man, I can't wait to play it. And so we drifted towards that. And then several years down the road, we ended up playing Rifts from Palladium. <laughs> so, you know, it was like just one convoluted rule set after another it uh, yeah and it's no wonder that nowadays my favorite systems are like 5e dungeon world um I, i'll dabble in burning wheel because it's in a good order right. but but yeah i'm just like total simplified man now <laughs> that's just what i want so for you the genre was really what drew you to it kind of in contrast yeah. with shadow Run. okay absolutely yeah, yeah. so how long did you play ad and d then jeff Ooh, boy. I want to say through high school into my first couple years of college. So about six years, okay. going around six years. And then my my group of friends parted ways. We all, you know, went to one college or the other. And, you know, it was obviously before the Internet was a big thing. And, yeah, so gaming kind of went by the wayside until they finished college and everybody came back to town. And then Pathfinder was kind of in our sights. So it was 3-5 and then Pathfinder. Oh, wow. So that's what we did, yeah. Now, Joshua, it sounds like you transitioned from 1E into 2E pretty quickly there. So how long did you play First Edition consistently? Um, probably two to three years. What precipitated the change in, uh, in your mind? Was it the variety of settings in 2E or your friends were just wanting to go that way? Yeah, somebody bought the books and, <laughs> <laughs> and his older brother went to college, so we didn't have access to his brother's books. <laughs> The, the thing to remember between 1 and 2E is it, it's not uh, as fundamental a shift as between 2 and 3E. You could, you could mm. pretty easily take characters from 1E to 2E or take modules from 1E and play them in 2E with, with almost, with, with very minimal challenges. Okay. Yeah, you can actually take some of the modules that are out there, um, like some of the Alcadem modules you can actually take, and it has conversion charts or even yeah. charts are even necessary, and you can swing it right back to 1E. And I think with 1E, it sounds like 1E AD&D was pretty workable with basic D&D stuff too. And so uh, like B2, that module uh, 
the keep on the Borderlands, that was actually written for basic D&D. Mm-hmm. And I've heard lots of people say that they've played that after T1, the village uh, oh, sure. of Hamalang. Um, so it seems like 1E was, was a, related fairly well with those other ones. Uh, whereas 4th edition, which I played, seems to not play well with any of the others, except maybe 5th edition, so... Yeah, and and I think that's why you saw a lot of the fourth edition books were conversions of the old. You know, they brought out all the splat books, but they also brought out the modules that were conversions or ports from the older editions. Right. You know, like Tomb of, Tomb of Horrors. You know, they brought that out for four E, which I think actually makes for a good. It's actually a good module for four E, but again, we're we're going afield. So let's talk crunch a little bit. So Jeff, where do you think AD and D, the mechanics actually excelled? Um. Tables. Um, there are lots of them, as I've seen thus far. In the- there's a lot, yeah, and it, it doesn't diminish in the player's handbook when you switch over to that either. Um, I I actually liked having the accessibility of the tables. A lot of folks will complain about the organization of the book, and I, I actually will join my voices to the choir, but I can kind of see... And, you know, rumor has it that Gary Gygax was, you know, used to be an insurance claims adjuster or something to that effect. So I can, and, and because I'm in the financial services industry, I can kind of see where his thought process was the way he <laughs> flowed out this book. Right. You know, it, it sounds funny, but it's true because when I'm actively looking at something that's, you know, I have pertinent text here, I want the related table here, even if it means it's got to go over to the next page. And, you know, if, that table needs to be repeated or tweaked. I'll do that later, mm-hmm. so long as it's pertinent to the text later. And I kind of see how he's done that. You know, like you'll have, like for thieves, you'll have the particular listen checks, pickpockets, all those percentages and stuff are located right there with the thieves items. You know, it's not located somewhere else. It's not located where, you know, the overall uh, saving throws and, and other types of ability tests or checks are located. Because you could just as easily say, okay, I'm going to break down all the checks here. I'm going to break down all the thieves stuff, all the magic user stuff here. You could do that. But um, he, you get rewarded by seeing this flow by getting to the end of the DMG mm-hmm. and finding all the glorious tables and random encounter stuff that's at the, the back end. That's the kind of crunch and flavor that's that's moved through the gaming industry all the way up to where we are right now. Yeah. Where I, I when when uh, uh, for for um, uh, for En-ROADS, when we did our first uh, actual play with the 5e, the free edition, we were like little little kids in a candy store when we got to like the different random tables when it came to character <laughs> creation. I mean, don't get me started on the, uh, the 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 odd item that you bring with you. You roll a d100, and you you know you have like a a dead sprite in a jar. I'm like, oh, okay, how the hell did I get that? <laughs> but it's random. Who cares? It's on a table. So that's that's where I think it really excelled. Mm-hmm. Now, places where I think it might not have excelled as well uh, would be like ability and skill checks. So, as somebody, uh, so I've only read eighty pages of the DMG. That is all sure. I've got this far, and I'm sure some of the people have never played AD and D. So, give us a give us a role play for us. Tell us what that would look like. How the skill checks would be uh, dissimilar from Pathfinder or uh, another game we might be familiar with. Well, it's going to be rolled up against your abilities. So whatever your um, whatever the uh, associated ability score would be, whether it's charisma, uh, there's a good example within the book itself. Um, I think this is the player's handbook where it has a little picture of uh, of a barkeep with an axe in the wall next to him. And I'm going to make a side comment here: the art that's in these books 
some people might see it as like you know uh, low quality blah yeah. blah 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 for me it looks like those awesome um plates that would be inside the old expedition books you know like the journals from people who are exploring the deepest darkest reaches <laughs> of africa or south america and they have to do drawings on the fly and stuff like that so every time i saw it i was just like yeah it's, it's just a it dude, ignites it's, just, it's a dude with a pencil you know yeah, and it, it ignites the the explorer in me, the adventurer in me, because it just my mind instantly connected to that. Hence the reason I minored in art history in college. So, well, that's a whole other story. But um, yeah, so an example of this would be, let's say, if um, you know, in this in this panel, this little picture, it says, "Oh, the barbarians have an effect. You better just give him what he wants to calm him down." Something to that effect. And you could potentially use your charisma. You could use your um, strength if you wanted to overpower him, you know, physically, if you wanted, you know, basically you're, you're going to go over to that bar barbarian, you're going to tell him to calm down and you're going to use your presence, your strength, or you're going to use your will, your uh, wisdom. You're going to appeal to his better senses, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And you would roll a D20 and well, actually, no, I should say the GM would roll, the DM would roll a D20 behind his screen and then let you know how well you did. And it's going to be based against that number of your, um, your particular score. So if you have a nine in charisma, you got to roll below a nine. So really the, what you see in most games now where players are making their skill checks, it was really the, the skill check score was static and it was the difficulty being rolled by the GM in a sense that was uh, dynamic. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely one way to go. The, the, the DMG, as you kind of read through it, you'll see that it gives you a lot more options. If you read through the player's handbook, you'll see there's like, you know, one option for character creation. But in the DMG, you'll have like there's 12 or something like that. There's just a ridiculous number of them, if I remember correctly. Joshua, what do you think AD&D did really well uh, when it came to the mechanics? First edition has a whole lot of randomness built in. I mean, you you as the DM often would not know the what's going to happen and if once you sort of got the hang of it you you know there were a lot of interesting surprises um it was also deeply tactical as a system i mean this is is coming out of wargaming and and really it's a it's a very tactical game um and that that has a lot of interesting components. Um, I, I think you know I I'd agree with where Jeff was. I think going, but he didn't. He stopped himself. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's because it is a combat game. Hmm. There yeah. there are sort of some sketches of rules to handle non-combat scenarios, but mostly those were left up to player GM interactions. Okay. You went right. Um, where I, you went right where I went when it came to what I didn't like about the game. <laughs> it, it, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say I liked it or disliked it. Um, it but but that's its emphasis. And so if you want to, if you want to have more complex social mechanics, they're not there. Uh, if you want to have more complex investigative mechanics, they're not there. Um, and and I would actually say that's been a challenge for every edition of D and D, mm. period. Because um, sometimes they, you can made... add too many rules, right? Yeah, you can right. add too many rules to it. Um, and so so, but that imbalance. There's lots of detail on on the tactical side, uh, and less on the other sides. 
you know, and for some play styles, that works really well. Um, that's not actually the part I like or dislike about it. The thing I dislike about first edition D&D, AD&D, more than anything else, is it's very constrained on your player options. Really? So if you... Yeah, so, so again, opening my Gary Gygax Memorial Edition. <laughs> you know, if you, if you open to, to page nine where they're talking about ability scores. But, but if you go to like the, the strength table, we'll, we'll just pick on that. For starters, it goes from three to 18 double zero. But at five, you know, below, with a strength lower than five or five or lower, you can only be a magic user. Right. At six, it's your minimum strength to be a gnome, half orc, or a halfling. At eight, you know, that's, that's the minimum strength to be a dwarf, and and so on and so forth. And then, um, you know, you get to the top end where seventeen maximum strength possible for a female dwarf or a female half elf or male halfling character. Right. Eight and and each each ability score has this sort of whole pattern of well, at this point you can be here, at that mm-hmm. point you can't be there. Um, and, and at every phase, you know, you get to classes. Dwarves can only reach level 8 in this class, level 12 in that class, and oh, you can only be one of three classes as a dwarf. You can be a fighter, a thief, or a cleric. Ah, uh, or you can multi-class. You I'll correct you there. Dwarves can't be clerics. NPCs can be clerics. NPCs. Oh, that's dwarves. right. That's right. <laughs> it shatters my entire belief system when I think about that, because even having played the game, I always think of dwarves as clerics. Always right. <laughs> well, I thanks think to my current, I think of them as bards now too. But that's another story. Uh, but but I honestly think that that's why you see something that Jeff was was moving towards, which <laughs> is you get lots and lots and lots of house rules, and very <laughs> often they they come in and out, and nobody can explain to you why we we did that. And and so if you move from one one gaming table to the next, mm-hmm. you didn't just have your player's guide your dmg and your monster manual you also got handed a sheet or <laughs> booklet or loose leaf notebook loose leaf binder with all the house rules that tweaked things yeah so yeah. so that, let, let me let me speak to the to the positives y'all pointed out and then we'll get, we'll get back to joshua's point here about kind of house ruling and, and we'll dig into that a little bit with the the randomness uh, aspect of it, which is what I've found... Well, there have been two things I've found really fascinating as I'm reading the Dungeon Master's Guide. The first thing that really grabbed me was just the tone um, with which Gygax wrote the book. Um, It really is, at times, very funny, um, and there are times where... um, There's a part of the introduction where... He's kind of talking about how the Dungeon Master's Guide is this like secret tome of knowledge, and no one else is supposed to have. You uh, cannot buy it. No, yeah, and, and, and he says in here that um, if you <laughs> if you see a player um, play, I should have highlighted it. If you see a player reading a Dungeon Master's Guide and they're not a Dungeon Master, I assume he meant their character, but he said that player is worthy of imminent death. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. It's a, my secrets are my own, Frodo. My yeah. secrets are my own. And and there's this. Uh, people complained when I played Fourth Edition that that it felt as though the the DM and the players were oppositional toward each other. And Gary Gygax seems like, of course, they're opposition to each other. Uh, I am the enemy, <laughs> and uh, that's how I designed it, kids. Right. So <laughs> that's 
very characteristic. It it was ameliorated as editions went on, yeah. but it's still you know first I, there are stories basically Gary would sit in a corner. Not with a screen, but he would actually be facing away with like a cubicle wall where his players couldn't see him. The players would be at their table, and he they would call out what they were doing, and he would call back. So they weren't even <laughs> in the same space. So I, 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 for some reason, like I'm reading it, and it's just delicious. I'm loving it. The tone is just I, I find myself laughing out loud uh, reading sure. this book. But the other thing with the, with the randomness, you know, I, I've been playing most recently uh, Fantasy Flight's Star Wars RPG, and one of the things that I love about that system, and it's, it, it is my favorite RPG system that I've played, is that the players have a lot of ability to shape the narrative and to shape the scene and to affect, and so as, as a GM, I find myself often not knowing what's coming, and that, that makes it a lot of fun for me. And so the random, randomness tables, like the random encounters, the random dungeon, all the stuff that's in here, that to me sounds really exciting as a, as a DM, but I'm, at the, on the other hand, as a player, I, you know, I'm concerned that it could end up feeling just very arbitrary. Like, why did they just throw that at us? And why, what did, how does this have anything to do with, with this story? And, and, and again, a complaint that, um, fourth edition players had when I was playing that, again, for three years, was that it was a combat game. It really was more of a tactical tabletop skirmish game than it was a role-playing game, I felt. And so the question I have then is, why is this game, first edition, like that, do you think? And, and it's been kind of passed down to the other editions. Do you think it's because this was written by one guy and he was a war gamer in the past, and so that just kind of bled over into his book? Um, what's your take on that, Jeff? Um, well, I'll, I'll say, yeah, I'll agree with you, you know, the, the wargamer part, the tactical mind, his, you know, mysterious past in the, in the, uh, in the public sector. Um, I would say, yeah, that has a lot to do with how the rules shaped up, but I think it's because of the, the visceral quality that naturally emerges from a game like this. You know, there was a, there was a, a phrase that I grew up with called a telephone tough guy. Um, which is basically you're behind the veil of anonymity and you can be whatever you want. You can be as tough as you want. You know, you have that with trolls out there on the internet now. Right. It's a hundred million times worse. And I think that his understanding that the natural inclination of a game like this is towards violence. You know, it's just kind of where you're going to go. You're up against horrible, misshapen, disgusting creatures. They're non-human. It's time to just pummel the crap out of them and just take care of business. But so that's where his rules mind went. But there are moments within the game, there are beats within the game itself, within the rules, within the player's handbook, um, that speak towards the role-playing aspect being very, very, very free-form and very, very, very narrative-driven. When you're outside of a module, you're going to have a lot of room to move, depending upon how dependent your DM is on those tables. Um, you know, like, are they going to panic because they don't go into the tavern, but they go to the stable to sleep? And now you go, okay, is there a table for a horse maybe kicking them in the night? Where do I find that? <laughs> so it's it's not so much... I, I think the tables are there. There's an inundation of them. I think that's why so many different variations of the DM screen are out there because you don't know which tables you want to have out there. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, I'm kind of getting towards the answer. No, of no. Question, I, th but, I think uh, that that does get to it. I mean, Josh, yeah. do, you, do you agree that that's kind of where Gygax is coming from, and that's why we have the game that we have? I, you know, I, I would, I would say, 
that it it grew out of the fact that yeah he he came at this from wargaming he liked combat and the rest of the stuff was just fluff to get you between interesting challenges you know he liked he he put the exploration component in and there are a lot of people who really love you know going 10 foot square by 10 foot square you know mapping every every little piece and that certainly was a an element but i think that was really basically all for you know from from and i'm i'm no historian i you know won't claim any special insight but but i think that's because basically the interesting parts were the fights and the traps mm-hmm. and the things that put your character at risk and everything else was uh, sure we're we can you know he's playing with his kids he's playing with his friends uh, with his kids, he can basically say, "Sure, this is what happens." With his friends, you know, he can say, "Sure, what is, this is what happens." He doesn't need rules right. for anything except adjudicating character death. Um, now, have you guys actually played any of his modules? Because my understanding, and again, I haven't read any of them yet, is that a lot of them are just meat grinders, absolute meat grinders, and you're, yep. you're gonna, your character's going to die, and yes. there's there's no time to pause. There's no real storyline, but get to the end. Um, is that is that descriptive of all this stuff? What have y'all played of his modules, and and what did you take away from them? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I think if you play them as written, they are meat grinders, and there is no time. Well, th- there are spaces and places where you can carve out time to either retreat. He actually calls that out in in sort of the intro of the player's handbook, mm-hmm. um, but. But yeah, as written, again, because what he wrote was, I, I would say, the, the skeletons of these narratives. Here's the maps, here's the combats, here's the threats. Anything else you want to build on top of that that isn't combat, you as the group needed to bring that to the table yourself. So you could add, and, and I think, you know, I've played, Several of the modules, actually I've played them, some of them, like Keep on the Borderlands, I think I played it three times with three different groups. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and each time it's a different experience. Sure, yeah. you, you, you sort of know who the big bad is, and, but, but the flavor is very different. Um, but as a rule, I carried four or five characters to every game session. Wow. Yes. And was, I, was I, that necessary? Sometimes. <laughs> Often you, you you would usually uh, at least my experience in sort of a four to six hour session most most modules you could expect a burn rate of a character an hour. Wow. Sometimes you'd yeah. do better. Yeah. Sometimes you'd do worse. So coming with a you know four or five characters usually let you go, get through a session without missing too much playtime. Well, besides keep on the Borderlands, which other of his modules did you play uh, if you remember? Um, I played the uh, Against the Giants, the um, Drow series, played uh, the the Slave Lord series, did Temple of Elemental Evil uh, and Village with the Village Hamlet. Um, trying to think, uh, that's a solid. There was a solid three quarters of them, just about. There was Pretty a much, random yeah. desert one that uh, involved some mummies and pharaohs. I don't remember the name of that one. <laughs> I don't remember either. But th- those are the ones I sort of remember. Uh, oh, and of course, I-, I won't say I played Tomb of Horrors, but 
I died frequently in Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> I, speared, I smeared my characters bloodily along the floor of the Tomb of Horrors. Yes. That's pretty much what I did. Now, Jeff, Jeff yeah. did you play all those and have the same experience? Or, or are you the one um, person that, uh, that was victorious and had really narrative-driven uh, experiences in his modules? You know, we, we did keep on the Borderlands. And I, I have to say that I was completely blessed to have a fantastic game master right out of the gate with Dungeons and Dragons. We, we started with keep on the Borderlands, but I have to say that that was part of a central thread that was a larger experience that my game master put us through. And, you know, God bless Mr. Newbold. He's, he's up with the angels now, but, uh, he, he did a great job, and when we when we played Keep on the Borderlands, we um, <laughs> we decided he he's he's he'd already played through it a couple of times with mm-hmm. another group, and uh, what he said was that let's do this, let's go to the town, and let's build it up a little bit. So he led us on little adventures here and there, like mm-hmm. you know, let's go take care of this little tribe of goblins, or let's go get rid of this pack of wolves that has suddenly grown voracious for human flesh. <laughs> and um, I hate it when that happens. Well, yeah, just come on, really. And so you know, where's a druid when you need one? Um, so what what ended up happening is he actually started guiding us towards building a company of mercenaries under each of us. Mm-hmm. And then when we had built up sufficient skills, or not skills, but uh, but levels, then we went in to keep on the Borderlands. And he tweaked a few things. I didn't realize this until years later. He tweaked it based on how long we stayed in the town and all the different misadventures we got up to. Um, we still lost characters. I would say it was about every hour and a half, two hours, roughly. Man. Um, but it was, uh, but it was because he had had to dial it up. You know, he didn't put it all the way up to eleven, but it, you know, he had dialed it up quite a bit, just because we were higher level. And so, yeah, you know, early on, I was really exposed to a lot of narrative play, and I think that's why that kind of colored my answer earlier. Is that you know, I do see a lot of the narrative expanse that's available in in one e. And it may or may not have been Gygax's design that he did it this way, but it's just kind of the way it happened. Do you think players today would have patience for that? Because, like, playing the Star Wars RPG, I, you can't kill a player. It's 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 nigh unto impossible. It can be done, but it's nigh unto impossible. Yeah. Um, do you think people are just going to be like, this sucks, let's play another game? <laughs> like, they'll, um, like they'll, some- lose, they'll lose patience, you mean? Because, yeah. you know, I can't believe I spent all this time making a character and stuff. Well, that that's the nice thing about first edition... Uh, especially yeah. low-level characters. Again, because it is so constrained, it's not actually all that much time to build a new character. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, compared to some of the some of the more some some other systems, uh, <laughs> you, you know, and and again, even at high levels, if you want to whip up a character really fast, you and get the lucky rolls, you mm-hmm. you play a fighter and just boom, you know, pick a big sword, <laughs> some heavy armor, and off you go. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's interesting, Jeff, because your experience was with a much older DM, sounds like. Yeah, he was a junior in high school at the time. Or no, a sophomore in high school. We had just gotten into freshman year of high school when we started. Yeah, so my my experience was with, what initially with my cousin, who, as I said, was probably just having fun killing his cousins. But then, <laughs> then it was with, with sort of my, my peer group, and we were learning together. So yeah. this idea of adding extra narrative elements. I mean, we were playing them as written yeah. the, the first time through. And, yeah, yeah. and that's um, that's a really different... I, I, I think many of us, our memories are colored by the, the specific groups we played with because oh, yeah. this system is so amenable 
to house ruling. Uh-huh. Yeah, it uh, is. Or, it, or requires house ruling. It, no, so, I'm gonna have to, I would say that's a better word. Yes, requires it. <laughs> so so you, what you, you tailor it to your group in a way that more modern systems are, are, are really polished for a specific play style. Uh-huh. So FFG yeah. Star Wars... Pretty much, I mean, you can you can do. There's a good range, but it's it's geared towards a narrative play style. Yeah, yeah. If you play Warhammer 40k, it's geared to a very specific play style. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there wasn't because this is so early in the history of role playing games, mm-hmm. nobody really had a concept of what the space was. Yeah. So. You know, there was, okay, we let, we know we need to have rules to adjudicate things where characters are going to die. But the rest of it, well, we'll make it up as we go because we can. Well, and I think that's why you have D&D as kind of the standard, you know. Uh, you, you play role-playing, uh, any role-playing game, people want to know, well, how's it compared to D&D? And when people start out, where do they start? Besides mm-hmm. Jeff. D&D. <laughs> you know. So, so Je- Jeff, which... which You can guy- blame Blade Runner for that. It's not right. my fault. <laughs> so which which uh, which Gygax modules did you play? Did you play the same ones that Joshua did? or, or- um, Less than Joshua did, actually, because we uh, we spent time with Keep on the Borderlands a lot longer than we should have. Um, then he brought in some material from Greyhawk, okay. um, you know, World of Greyhawk, so we started kind of playing in that realm. Um so it was, it, we spent a lot of time like building our own stuff up. Like we, by the time we finished keeping the borderlands, we had like on average, I'll just throw a number out there, like one out of seven characters that we had made. Mm-hmm. And cause I remember for myself, I finished with one character. He was a paladin and his name, God forgive me, his name, his name was erstwhile and erstwhile. forgive me for the name, but that was his name. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> But anyway, yeah, we had finished that, and by the, that time, we had actually tripled the size of the town that was nearby. And we we ended up, like, I think I ended up being the uh, the sheriff of the town, and then one of the other persons ended up being the governor or whatever. So, so did y'all it, have it was all that the, kind of thing. the hirelings and all that? I read those rules. Yeah. Okay, so y'all, y'all, y'all went all down that path. Yeah, that was interesting. And a lot of times, obviously, they're gold luggers. They're, you know, hey, I found a cool scimitar. Here, hold this hireling, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Or you know, we, we were, mm-hmm. when we were watching, uh, we were watching, um, 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 Willow, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to get halflings as, as hirelings and just yell at them out of the way, peck, you know, that sort of thing. And just being stupid, you know, as stupid kids are, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so my experience was, was within the module. So keep on the borderlands, tomb of, uh, tomb of horrors. Uh, we did go through the giant trilogy. We didn't finish out queen of the whole queen of spiders book, um, which is, you know, that goes from G all the way through Q, I think. Right. Um, so we didn't get a chance to finish that. I would love to go back. I've got all those modules just with the idea of going back and doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wanted to play Dragon Mountain and then, uh, Brent Brown like hit me up by saying, Hey, let's convert that to 5e and like, I'm so sorry, Brent. We haven't really started on it, but I love that module, and we are going to do it. <laughs> Let's try not to speak ill of the dead. Our, you know, our, our dear friend Mr. Gygax has gone on to eternity. But let's uh, let's go for the throat. You know, I, I, before I was a tabletop gamer, I was a console gamer, and I still go back and play Mario, the original Mario game, on my NES because it's a great freaking game. Like it's just good. I go back and I still play Chrono Trigger on, on the Super... I was a Nintendo guy on the Super Nintendo. You know, I go back and I play these games again, not just because of the nostalgia, but because they are good games that are still fun to play. 
But you don't hear about a lot of people that have been playing fourth edition saying, "Hey, I'm going to go back to first edition because it was so awesome, uh, and it was so it, it, it was that was the game. It was so much fun." So, what about AD and D is just not good? Like, what is it that was an, a misstep that you're so glad they fixed um, in second edition or some later form? Level caps, um, disparities among races. Um, the disparities between classes, for example, the fact that Jeff actually rolled a paladin. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not going to accuse you of cheating on your dice rolls. <laughs> but... I was the only one, remember, there was four players, right? Each of us rolled seven characters. I was the only one to roll in that 12 deck. We did the 12 dice for each of the seven characters. I was the only one in the whole group to get enough to be a solid paladin. Wow. So, you know, getting classes, I mean... Some of those classes were very complicated. Yeah. Uh, the tables are an advantage. The random tables are an advantage. But when you actually started using the weapon rules, where, you know, weapons versus armor, each kind of weapon has a different applicability against different classes yeah. of armor. Yeah, that's confusing. I was noticing that the other night. Confusing? or I mean, you learn the rules. It's not necessarily confusing, but it's time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, what are, what are yours? T- toss in on top of uh, what Josh would have shared. I'll pile on. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah the, the gender differences, not, not uh-huh. like bringing in the topic, the, the main topic here, but a few of our sessions we actually had uh, Mike's sister join us. Mm-hmm. And she's like, why the heck am I weaker than this guy over here? I rolled better stats. And it's like, well, you're kind of capped here. Which, you know, the irony is, is if you read the opening lines of the player's handbook, it it's it's written in back in 78, 79, something like that. But it's like a flash forward to right now of saying, you know, hey, you need to be good about this stuff. There's no differences between, you know, this person or that person. You're all the same under the sun, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, but then you have that rule written right into the book. And, you know, it is what it is. So, I mean, you know, we had, it. you know, it's stuff like that that kind of, kind of got to me and I'll, I'll agree with the the racial requirements saying that you know if i'm a if i'm a dwarf i can't be a cleric or whatever if i wanted to do this i can't do that if i want to be a the only the only one that you could like rise up pretty successfully would be being a thief in and of themselves but the thing is is that if you're in a death heavy game like these modules are it's hard to be a thief only so like my my go to character was always a fighter thief fighter thief I mean, I I even put it on Twitter I was like you know fighter thieves unite baby because you know <laughs> that's that's exactly the character I would run with in a one e um, and the uh, the advantage to a thief so different classes had different advancement rates mm-hmm. yep the thief it was the easiest to level okay. you yep. could you could routinely get uh, one to two levels ahead of your group. Mm-hmm. pretty quickly um especially you know magic users and fighters i think had a much slower progression it was just brutal it seems like magic um, magic users are like really really easy to just ruin constantly oh they're um, so squishy they're so the, squishy the not joke was that you know you could kill a magic user, a beginning magic user with a house cap. <laughs> well, I mean, because what's he doing? If you he's dropped it from a t- third floor he's back, window. He's back there trying to tell us, uh, you know, go through his spell, and if he gets interrupted, he is screwed for the round. You know, oh, He's yes. just getting eaten up. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, and it's not just his spell for the round. Remember, at first level, that was probably his spell for the day. Right. Yeah. So, 
hi, I, I really want to play a character like, you know, Merlin or Gandalf, but uh, I get I get one casting of a spell, and the rest of the time I'm a crappy ranged combatant because you didn't want to get in melee, so you're stuck throwing darts. I got, um, I cast this magic missile, and all I got was this lousy dagger. <laughs> Come on, really, yeah. uh, really? So, so the you know, and and I don't again, I don't want to, I don't, I don't consider this a, a personal assault on on the game developers. It was this is one of the first iterations of games period and and it's a a transition from basic D&D where races were classes. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> if you played an elf, you were an elf and you had some magic and you had some fighting skill and that was it. Yeah. The the evolution is is really interesting. So, Jeff, do you think this game uh punishes players? Like it sounds like it's a it's a DM's game more than it's a player's game. Yeah. I mean, for the DM who loves to organize using his own um, quarrel of arrows, as it were, yeah, I mean, or, or quiver of arrows, yeah, you you definitely can see this as a DM's game. Um, you know, again, my experience was a little bit different, so we had a lot of fun as players. I never, it wasn't until many, many moons later that I actually ran a game of my own, and it was very brief indeed. It was just kind of like, oh, like you said, a nostalgic kick, you know. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, the double lots, and I decided, hey, let's go back and play some 1E. I still have these books over here. Since, since then, those books have disappeared into my friend's collection <laughs> because I never look at them. And I was like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to play it again. Cause after that nostalgia kick, I was done. Really? Um, yeah. So, yeah. so, so, you, so you've already done this project. I don't even have to do it now. So, so, so why? <laughs> <laughs> you just you just realize all these shortcomings of of the game compared to modern stuff and, and uh, kind of I mean I don't know I I don't I mean at the time you know I was playing three five so I was used to so many different permutations of rules abilities and you know a feat for this and a feat for that and it was almost kind of like you took you know the rules for frostbite and the rules for dehydration and then you threw it into a funnel and then you gave that complexity to the skills you know and it's like oh wow you know i can have this feat and then these three skills are boosted and then i can do that and it's like all the times you were trying to cheat on the dice to get a paladin you can now power game your way into an awesome character and right. i unfortunately was a power gaming so and so during that time none, <laughs> none of us have ever done that we, you know never I, I i know i'm in bad company for this kind of discussion <laughs> so I'll, I'll move on um but you know it it wasn't it was because i was in that phase of my life i think now because i'm so exposed more towards narrative games i've gotten back to what my my buddy had started me out with I'm so involved with more narrative-focused games like, you know, like Dungeon World, as I use that as an example all the time. Um, it, the actual itch, again, came back to me about going old school, going back to 1E or even 2E, is because I was playing Stars Without Number for a while. And they actually borrow a bunch of really cool aspects of 1E in that game. Um, you know, whether it's using saving throws and rolling under the number, that sort of stuff. I mean, it, it, there's a few few comparisons. Um, but it also kind of, you know, it, it, it reminded me that, you know, those rules aren't so bad. You know, we can ha laugh and joke and have fun about all the wacky tables and, you know, rules for walking across the desert, you know, with a horse with no name, you know, that sort of thing. You know, if you name your horse, you'll get bonuses. If you don't, well, say la vie. But um, it's... It's it's it was fun. It was fun. So I, that's why I mean, I, yeah, you're crazy for doing this, but yeah, I totally applaud you, and I totally get it. I totally get it. 
Well, Joshua, so, so for myself or for anyone else that wants to learn AD&D, um, what advice would you give? And, th and this is, with your advice, I'll also ask for your two best house rules that you, that you can remember. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> so, so my, the first piece of advice, and, and I think this goes for any game system and any setting, is really to manage you, the DMs, and the players' expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my recollection, and, and Jeff, you're, you had a, about half the mortality rate, I seem to recall, but, but the same basic sense. <laughs> I died at the door of the Tomb of Horrors. The door, <laughs> but, man! But see, I'm remembering dying like every hour. You're remembering dying every two. The point is, you know, you... you when you get your group together, if you're going to play this, really be very clear on what those expectations are. Um, and, and the second is, you know, just be really aware that you're going to house rule a bunch of stuff. And you're probably not even going to realize you're house ruling it because you're just going to say, uh, you know, I don't want to spend an hour looking through the books while I'm at the table. So here's the, the call. And then you'll go spend three hours after the game and you'll not find any rule about it. Right. Or you'll find the rule and you'll go, wow, now here's, that's kind of miserable. Here's one plus that this was kind of the hook. The, the bait was out there. This was the hook that, that got me onto this. About a year ago, um, DriveThroughRPG.com made all the AD&D stuff available via searchable yep. PDF. Um, mm -hmm. And so as, as I've been reading through the DMG, I'm like, how... I will never find this rule. It's like mm -hmm. in a really bizarre place. But if I get the PDF, I could search it. You know, so there, there's some beauty. But again, you don't want to. That do was going to be my addendum recommendation. Was get the PDFs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but still, I mean, you don't want to do that in the middle of the game. I, I, I make up rules all the time in games just so I don't, we don't have to waste time digging through books. You know. So do you? You were. You were. I interrupt you there, Joshua. No, no, but but that's that's sort of the point is you're not going to be able to run pure AD&D. Just accept that because there is no... I'm sure there's a table somewhere that ran it pure, <laughs> but, but quite frankly... Um, and they, they all, they all entered master. the table looking nice and young and full of life, and they all left <laughs> bald and sad and just really, really old. But, you know, I, the, the, the house rules that, that I think we probably used the most was we got rid of level caps. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we didn't, there's an XP cost for multi-classing. We mm -hmm. didn't get rid of that, but we generally just ignored the fact that an elf could only be like a level, you know, whatever magic user tops mm -hmm. and a level four levels less fighter. And um, so we, we tended, we basically just didn't, um, didn't do those. Uh, that was a big one. I mean, you can keep the racial class requirements. So, for example, elves and dwarves and gnomes can't be player character clerics. Right. Good, good point. That's, that's, those are actually really good ideas, to be honest. Jeff, what advice would you give to, to myself or anyone wanting to learn AD&D in this modern age? <laughs> well, you know, it, and I think, I think Josh, you, you actually hit a really good point, is that you're not going to be able to enter into this game without being a little bit colored to what you the other games that you've played because you're going to go through a rule your care your players are going to go listen to a rule a ruling by you and they're going to say wait a second that 
that's nonsense. Why would we do anything like that? Why did you even pull that table out of somewhere and decide that you're going to do this? What? And so kind of be prepared to allow the influence of other games to kind of roll with it to help sure. you and your players so it kind of diminishes frustration. Um, Josh, great, great house rules. I wish we had thought about that back then, but <laughs> we never did. Um, I'll tell you, you know what, and, and I've heard other game, other groups have used this, but we use this for interactions, for some kind of, some randomization. So like if, there are some listen rules where you're rolling a d20 and, and you have certain percentages that can influence that sort of stuff. Um, we went with a house rule where we take, like whatever the relative ability score is, we would use a set of d6s to roll against that. Mm. Um, so for instance, let's say, uh, we'll, we'll use the barbarian as an example. The one was at the bar, you know, throwing his axe, blah, blah, blah. So you're going to go over and you're going to talk to this barbarian. You're going to use their charisma and you decide, yeah, I'm going to sweet talk this guy down. But what ends up happening is that your charisma is great, but he's like super mad. So as a DM, you can add difficulty to it. So, mm. Your standard roll might be 3d6, and you have a charisma of 12, so you roll your 3d6, you've got very good chances you're going to win. Best because you're a bard or whatever, or let's say you introduce the appendices bard. Sure. We'll not, even, we'll not get into that, never mind. Um, <laughs> but you roll 3d6, it's super easy, but then I'm thinking, no, this, this barbarian is super pissed, and actually he's looking at you, and you look like the guy that killed his father. So <laughs> I'm going to add d6 to, d6s to that. So let's say it's super difficult, I'm going to give you 5d6, and you wow. got to roll under that 11 or that 12 charisma score. So it's kind of a way to kind of uh, add some flavor and some dynamism to your everyday mundane skills. So and that way, and, and and you still yeah. and you put the dice in the player's hand too, which I think yeah. probably helps that uh, relationship a bit. Yeah. So that's one that's one house rule that we went through and we really liked. Um, uh, one thing I would say is that get away from the DM only knows, and really really encourage the players to know their particular rules. Yeah. Um, that was a lesson I learned in Shadowrun really quick because I like to play magic users there. Uh, I'd play a street shaman or whatever, and I had to know my rules because the DM, it wasn't their responsibility to always know those rules. They could adjudicate, but they don't always have to be, know the rules. So if they're a thief, make sure they have their tables ready if they're you know an assassin or a monk or something like that, and just make sure they have the knowledge of their character class. That's going to help you a lot. Yeah. And and again, we have we have a big advantage. You have a big advantage of having multiple games under your belt right. uh, that you've mm-hmm. played. And if if you feel like there's a house rule that you want to bring in that works really well, whether it's from you know Fantasy Flight or if it's from Five E D and D or wherever, you know, you know, toss it around with the players, see what they think. And if you're making fl- on the fly house rules, write it down yeah. immediately so that yeah. that way you can remember it later. I made a lot of mistakes not doing that. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that's I think that's about it. And then bring bards out of the appendix and let them play bards. There you, you can't. Super no, awesome. you can't. Oh come you've on! Got to, you've got to do the fighter and then the thief, or vice versa. They're in the appendix. Class. They're right down there. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, you could let them play it, but just remember, it's going to take them like twelve levels to get to play a first level bard. Well, yeah. if, 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 if my brother listens to this podcast, uh, you know, I, I got to put this in here that our, our experience from fourth edition is that bards always die ignominious deaths. So, oh. uh, yeah, it's uh, we'll, we'll... first edition bards are not are, are actually really, really cool because you're going to have multiple levels as a fighter. Yeah, it's like fighter, thief levels... and all kinds of stuff, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah you have to have some levels as a fighter, some levels to the thief, and then you have the levels as a bard. You're you're pretty boss by the time you actually start to be a bard. Mm-hmm. I I totally think pick pick an adventure, run it. If you like it, keep going, but don't be afraid to say, you know, the the really cool aspect of the gameplay was not of of these stories, of these these adventures is not necessarily the save versus death. You have a 5% chance. Oh, I'm sorry, you die five feet into the adventure. Or you you put your hand in the dark <laughs> darkness Memories. inside the lion's mouth and vanish. Um, <laughs> um, or, you know, things like that. Or, you know, oh, I'm sorry, first, first level magic user, you rolled a one and you have uh, an average constitution. Or worse, you have a hit point penalty on your constitution. So you rolled yeah. a one on your hit points. You're dead because <laughs> yeah. you have a minus one. Well, Jeff, you got any final thoughts? Uh, have fun with it, man. Definitely have fun. It's it's a great nostalgia kick. I mean, it. I would say next time you do this, you're probably going to try Molfe. You're going to go like really crazy and and try and do that so you can really get the flavor of the meat grinder. Yeah. But um, no, I, you know what? I, I think you're going to have a great time. You're approaching it with a great enthusiasm and. So, uh, but yeah, manage the expectations, you know, get the players buy-in, you know, nothing, nothing says great DM like saying, Hey, what do you guys think about this? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's antithetical to how one E was written, but you can do it. There you go. <laughs> also enjoy killing characters. <laughs> <laughs> I will do that. That goes without get a saying. a taste for blood. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you guys. And for anyone listening out there, if you want to follow my journey through first edition AD&D, you can follow it on madcleric.com. I'm hoping to have content on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It may be a blog post. It may be a short audio recording. It may be a, 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 a full-blown podcast like this one. Uh, but you can follow me there. You can reach me online. Uh, my uh, Twitter account is... Uh, at wood underscore Jason D and uh, I'm on Facebook too. What about you guys? What's the best way to get in touch with y'all if they wanted to? Uh, easiest way to reach me is at on Twitter at Joshua Evan Brown. Cool. Uh, for me, you can reach me on Twitter at uh, it's going to be weird. So it's at GSP Keegan. So GSP K H E E G A N. Um, or you can just go to inroadsministries.com. You can find out all about what we do there, and you can reach me there. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. I'm just under Jeff Robo. You can go to the tavern. That's where I hang out quite a bit, and a few other groups as well. And we'll have all these links and uh, usernames posted on, on uh, madcleric.com as well. So, gentlemen, thank you. And for all of you out there, keep on chasing that dragon.